0: I'm <clears throat> <clears throat> I'm trying to That's why
1: الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاه والسلام على اشرف الانبياء والمرسلين وعلى اله واصحابه اجمعين اللهم انا نسالك الهدى وما انا نسالك الهدى والتقى والعفاف والغنى ربنا آتنا في الدنيا حسنا وفي الآخرة حسنا وقنا عذاب النار oh Allah we ask you for the good of this life and the good of the hereafter and to save us from the hellfire. Thank you guys for joining me again for another uh, discussion centered around the life and trial of Imam Ahmed. So we left off in the last discussion talking about Imam Ahmed and his upbringing, him being raised by his mother, Uh, much like many of the scholars of Islam, um, whether we knew that or not, Many of the scholars of Islam, like Imam al-Bukhari, Imam uh, al-Shafi'i, Sufiana Thodi, uh, uh, Imam Malik, many scholars who were raised by their mothers. Uh, We don't usually get a chance to uh, underscore that or highlight that in our pursuit of learning about their lives, but um, nonetheless, they were raised by their mothers. Uh, Imam Ahmed, rahimahullah taala, is as we left off. He said that حفظتني أمي القرآن وأنا عشر He said that my mother um, helped me to memorize the Quran when I was ten years old. All right, so you could see the diligence. He said that my mother, you know, she used to put on her hijab. كانت أمي تلبسني اللباس what قبل الفجر وأنا عشر سنوات. He said that my mother used to clothe me, used to get me dressed, and used to wake me up for salatul fajr and bring me water. And in many instances, she would put on her hijab and walk me to the masjid. And if there was um, a, a lecture, uh, Imam Ahmed's mother would ask one of the men to, you know, bring him home after the lecture was over. This is a mother that was determined to make something of her son. This is a mother who was determined that her son was going to leave his mark on the world. And boy, did he. And boy, did he. All right. Um, Similar to the mother of Anas ibn Malik, Rumaysa bintul Milhan, who I wrote the book, uh, The Paradox of Change, about that she converted to Islam. And Anas' father didn't convert, and she was a single mother. And when the Prophet ﷺ migrated to Medina, Uh, The mother of Anas, she went to uh, the Prophet and she said that I don't have a place for you to live. I don't have a home for you to come stay at. She said, but here, take my son Anas and let him serve you for as long as you need, because she understood that for a young boy, especially as them, you know, her and her son being new converts to Islam, she understood, she understood that you know, he needed a, a male role model and what a better role model, right, for a boy than the role model for all of mankind, Muhammad sallallahu <laughs> Right? What a better role model than that. And Anas anhu he ended up staying with the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam for ten years. Anas anhu he mentioned in an authentic hadith, he said Khadimtu Rasulullah
2: 10 Sanawat, Walam He said that I serviced the
1: Prophet. I stayed with the Prophet sallam, for 10 years, and he never once said to me, oof. He never once gave me a word of disapproval. He said that I've never held a hand that was softer than the hand of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. i never seen someone whose character was so, you know. I never, I never engaged anybody like that. So you can see that the Prophet Sallallahu Wasallam's interaction and engagement with Anis had a profound impact on him and who he was to become later on. Um, Imam Ahmed, he said, فَلَمَّا <laughs> Imam Ahmed said that when I became 16 years old, this is pay attention for your moms. There's a lesson for you moms, right? Who are sitting at home right now listening. It's you, your children, you, your son, you, your sons, for whatever reason, no judgment for whatever reason. But I want you to listen. This was a woman who was determined to make sure that her son left a mark on this world. Imam Ahmed said, he said, when I became 16 years old, when I turned 16 years old, right? He's not, his mom is not throwing him a 16 year old party, right? This is an American culture, including the Muslims, right? Where our sons and daughters turn 16, turn 17, turn 18, we throwing them these big birthday parties, we burn, them, throwing them these big bashes, these big you know, parties to celebrate the fact that they've reached a certain age in their life. And although 16 biologically, you know, they might be 10, 11, 12 years old, you know, emotionally, right? We're celebrating the wrong stuff, man. We celebrate the wrong stuff. We throw in our daughters, you know, a sweet 16 and spending all of this money and all of these lavish, elaborate parties to celebrate our daughter reaching the age of 16, but she has the maturity level of a 10 year old. We celebrate the wrong stuff, man. This society has us so backwards, so backwards, man. He said, when I turned 16 years old, my mother said to me, go seek knowledge of hadith. Go seek knowledge of hadith. This is a mother not pulling him away from the circles of knowledge, encouraging him, pushing him out there. Go learn. Go learn the knowledge of hadith. Go learn the knowledge of hadith while we're pulling our children away from Islam. And then when our children are knee deep in the thralls of this dunya, in the clutches of this dunya, we're running to the nearest imam. We're running to the nearest student of knowledge trying to figure out how do I save my child when part of the reason why your child is in that situation is you. You are part of the problem. How do we, how do you save your child? Let's start by changing much of the, you know, let's start by unlearning much of the stuff that you taught him or her. You are part of the problem. We make mockery of the Islam. We make mockery of the Imams. We make mockery, nobody is good enough. Nobody is smart enough. Nobody is, you know, religious enough. What message are you sending to your children? If you're constantly talking about how bad the Muslim community is, constantly talking about how ignorant the Muslim leaders are, constantly talking about how uneducated the Muslim, you know, preachers and teachers are, constantly talking about how discombobulated our communities are, what message are you sending? What message are you sending to your children? You're constantly talking about how good the brothers are, uh, how how there's no good brothers out here, constantly talking about how there's no good sisters out here, constantly talk. What message are you sending? The Prophet wasallam he said, He who says that there is no good left in people, then he is the one whom there is no good in. When when your pessimism reaches a level where you don't see good in anybody, nobody measures up, nobody is good enough, nobody is religious enough, nobody is smart enough, nobody is adequate enough, nobody is capable enough, then who is? What's left for you and your family? You are basically isolating you and your children on an island by yourself, waiting to be slaughtered by shaytan, And then you come running back to the Muslim community (laughs) running back to the Muslim community when the, the dunya has you you know, by the grips and you're running back to the Muslim community trying to figure out how in the world you ended up in that situation. No, we're not perfect by, by any means. And make no mistake about it, when I or any other Muslim leader or imam or preacher, teacher, scholar criticizes the ummah, for the things that are going on within the ummah. We reserve the right to do that. You don't. What have you done for Islam for you to be so critical about the Muslim community the way that you are? What have you done? How much sadaqa have you given? How much time have you volunteered from your life? How how many sacrifices have you made for your life for Islam? How much? We are not the same. Me criticizing Muslim leaders or criticizing the Muslim community as a whole, I reserve the right to do that. I reserve the right to do that. You don't. What sacrifices have you made for Islam? Please.
2: But we just constantly pull and pull and criticize and critique the Muslim community with no end in sight.
1: Constructive criticism is highlighting the effort while also highlighting the areas of improvement. So if you are going to criticize, you're going to be critical of the Muslim community, then let it be constructive. But you're constantly, nobody is smart enough, nobody is religious enough, everybody's a hypocrite, everybody's a liar, everybody's this, then what's left? Then when you are isolated on the island by, that's why I don't mess with Muslims, that's why I don't do business with Muslims, that's why I don't do this with Muslims,
2: so then what's left for you? What's left for you? We we have to learn how to strike a balance. If you decide to criticize the Muslim community, criticize what's
1: going on in our ummah, and there's much room for criticism, also follow up with the areas of you know of effort also highlight the effort highlight the good so our children have a balanced outlook not that you're just constantly beating down the muslim community with you know never never anything good to say about islam and the muslims we have to learn how to strike a balance nonetheless when you can look at how this mother is pushing her son in a particular direction at 16 years old, while many of us are pushing our children at 16
2: years old. In what direction? In what direction? He said, when I became 16, when I turned 16 years old,
1: my mother said to me, go seek knowledge of hadith. She said, travel. We're telling our children, travel the world, go see the world, not for any purpose other than just traveling the world, just to say that you've been to Italy, just to say that you've been to Maldives, to say that you've been here. Travel the world for knowledge. Not just to say in your leisure, in your conversations with people, oh, yeah, I've been here and I got so many stamps in my passport, but you haven't learned anything from any of these trips, all the countries you've been to, all of the parts of the world that you've been to. What lessons have you learned from any of that? Has that brought you closer to God to know that God exists? Has Has that brought you closer to Islam? knowing the 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 areas that you've gone to that you've traveled to that muslims have either conquered those areas or have had influence
2: over those areas she said safir travel فَإِنَّ السَّفْرَ فِي طَلَبِ الْحَدِيثِ إِلَى
1: اللَّهِ جَلْ al الْأَحَدِ She said, travel to seek knowledge of hadith. She said, because traveling to seek knowledge of hadith is hijrah. It's like making migration to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala al-Ahad, The one, the unique. Imam Ahmed said to his mother, how shall I travel? How am I going to travel? I'm 16 years old. What do you want me to do? How am I supposed to travel? She said, She said, here's some food for you. This is your food,
2: your provision. That is your provision. She said, your legs are your riding animal. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sahibuk. And Allah is your companion. Go. You understand? Go. I just had this conversation with my 19-year-old just a few nights ago. Here's
1: your food. Here's your provision. Your legs are your, your vehicle, your mode
2: of transportation. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is your guide. Allah is your companion. Allahumma anta sahibu al safari.
1: Wa Khalifa as we make in our du'a when traveling, we say, Oh Allah, You are sahibu fis safari, You are my companion on my journey. Wa Khalifa and You are the watcher over my family while I'm gone. Don't ask how Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala God can be in two places at one time. Fis safari, Wa Khalifa You are my companion along my journey, and You are the guardian over my family while I'm gone. That's what Imam Ahmed's mother told him. She said, here's your risk. here's your provision, your legs are your vehicle, and Allah subhanahu
2: wa ta'ala is your companion. Go. Go seek knowledge of the religion. SubhanAllah. So Ahmed, he said that he began
1: traveling for knowledge. This started his journey for traveling for knowledge. Many scholars, like Imam al uh, um Imam uh, Al-Bukhari and many others who used to travel for long distances for uh, knowledge of hadith. You can imagine, uh, Imam Ahmed was poor. He spent most of his life as a kid in poverty. He had an uncle who used to work for the government, but Imam Ahmed was very rigid against taking money from the government. He was very rigid. He was very stern about accepting money from, uh, sources where, you know, there are strings attached, all right? So Imam Ahmed, rahim began traveling to seek knowledge. The first person that he sought knowledge from was uh, obviously his mother. <laughs> that was his first teacher. Mothers are usually the first teachers, all right? His mother was his first teacher, but the first scholar that he began to seek knowledge from was Abu Yusuf al Qadi, as well as, and he was the uh, Abu Yusuf al-Qadhi was one of the uh, contemporaries of Abu Hanifa, and then Husayn ibn bashir and he continued to seek knowledge from him until he died. Uh, Imam Ahmed wrote over 3,000 hadith from uh, Husayn ibn bashir He walked on his feet from Baghdad to Kufa. When you get a chance to look at that on the map, I want you to take a look at that, the distance. He walked from Baghdad to Kufa when he was 20 years old. And he went to go seek knowledge from Abu Mu'awiyah al dharir and Waqir ibn Jarrah. Waqir ibn Jarrah was also one of the shuyukh, one of the scholars of Imam al-Shafi'i. In a very famous line of poetry where Imam al-Shafi'i said that he walked out of the masjid and his, his eyes fell on the leg of a woman by accident and he forgot everything that he memorized. And he went to a scholar to go complain about his bad memory. The scholar he went to go complain to was none other than Waqir Ibn Jarrah Abu Malih. I named another one of my children after that. If you look at the line of most of my children, they have the names of the scholars of Hadith, most of my children. I was, I was as a student in the Islamic University, I was immersed in this world. It was only like I was physically amongst the people. Many times I might have seemed like I was in a daze. Many of times it might seem like you know I was out of it, or you know I was in a whole nother world. I'm there physically, but mentally, emotionally, I'm in a completely different zone. I was in a completely different zone. I literally lived amongst them, as Imam Bukhari, rahimahullah was. Asked of him, why don't you sit with us after salatul isha? Why don't you sit with us after salatul isha? And Imam Bukhari said, He said, because after salatul isha, I don't sit with you because I live with the Sahaba. After after salatul isha, I go into my books and I lose myself in the world of the Sahaba. I live amongst the Sahaba. He said, He said, And what shall I do with you guys? Why will I sit with you after Salatul Isha when all you guys do is sit around and backbite people? Why do I sit around with you and just talk about people? He said, I live with the Sahaba. After Salatul Isha, I go and I begin to read the books of the Sahaba and I lose myself. Imam al-Bukhari, ta'ala, he said that he traveled from one place to another and the whole time he's going off of his memory, his memory going from each Sahabi and going through their lives and their biographies. Imam al ta'ala, wrote his book, Al-Tariq Al-Kabir, the history of Islam
2: from his memory. You understand? He wrote that from his memory, 18 years old. He
1: started writing Sahil Bukhari, compiling Sahil Bukhari when he was 23 years old. This big book that you have on your bookshelf right now, that compilation, which is considered by the vast majority of Muslim scholars in the Muslim world as the most authentic book after the Qur'an. The most authentic book after the Quran. Imam al-Bukhari began compiling that book from his memory at the age of 23 years old. He wrote a tarikh, the history of Islam before Sahih al-Bukhari from his memory at
2: 18 years old. Don't tell me it can't be done. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chooses, but we have to push our children
1: in that direction. So if you see that your child or your grandchild, you see you have a child that is thirsty. They say, and you, and you can you can tell. As a teacher, I can look in my classroom, and out of maybe 15 to 18 students, I can see one or two that has it. You can you can you can spot it. They got a thirst for it. They have a thirst for it. And it's when it's up to the parent that when you see that in your child to begin nurturing that, to begin nurturing that. So he said that he walked from Baghdad to Kufa when he was 20 years old, and he learned from Abu Muawiyah. He also learned from Waqir ibn jarrah the same Sheikh of Imam Shafi, who Imam Shafi said his very famous line of poetry: "Shakoutu ila Waqir faarashadni ila tarak maasi nuru la yu'ta li'asi, That I complained to Waqir about my bad memory. So he directed me to leave alone sin. For in the علم because knowledge is the light of Allah. When الله and that the light of Allah is not given to those who disobey Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. He memorized all of the books of Waqir ibn Jarrah, and then he headed to the area of Basra. He went to Basra, and guess who he learned from in Basra? He learned from Ibn Mahdi, Abdurrahman ibn Mahdi and Ibn Ulayya and Yahya Ibn Saeed Al-Qattan, some of the mountains of knowledge, mountains of knowledge that he went to Basra to go learn from. And then after he traveled to Basra, he went to Mecca. All right, he traveled to Mecca and uh, Yahya Ibn Ma'in was his companion in many of these journeys. Yahya Ibn Ma'in, another, the imam, the imam of uh, Ahlul Hadith, The Imam of the scholars of Hadith, Yahya ibn main was Imam Ahmed's companion uh, in many of his journeys. He was also one of the scholars who was put into prison for not saying that the Qur'an was created. And Yahya ibn main ended up saying that, yes, the Qur'an was created to free himself, believe it or not. Imam Ahmed was very disappointed in him in that. He didn't believe it but he said it to kind of free himself so that he would not be tortured but imam ahmed lost a lot of respect for him as a result of that although a great scholar of hadith but when put into the flame put into the fire you know he became something else as we mentioned last week one of the scholars he said an ahmed ibn hanbal uh 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 ali ibn uh, khashram uh Excuse me, uh, Bishr ibn Hadith. He said, uh, Us'al an Ahmed ibn Hanbal. Am I to be asked about Ahmed ibn Hanbal? He said, Wallahi inna Ahmed fikir He said, Ahmed ibn Hanbal was put into the flames and he came out golden. You understand? This was a man who was, as they say in today's time, sturdy. Right? He was sturdy. Put into the flames and he came out gold. Right? Not everybody who's put into a flame comes out gold. Some
2: people come out burnt to a crisp because they buckle under pressure. They fold under pressure. So he traveled to Mecca. And in Mecca, he would meet one of the great scholars
1: of Islam who was known as Imam al Shafi'i. Imam Ahmad said in his own words, he said, What Imam Shafi'i? Imam Ahmed said that I was deprived of meeting Imam uh, Imam Malik. I was deprived of meeting Imam Malik. Just as I was deprived of meeting uh, Sheikh Muhammad ibn Salih al Uthaymin. Sheikh Uthaymin, I believe, died in like January, February. And I got to Medina uh, a little later than that. never had the opportunity but i translated his whole biography and so therefore i became very much acquainted with him may allah subhanahu wa ta'ala have mercy upon him uh, out of all of the contemporary scholars uh, that was probably this is he is probably the one that had the most influence on my studies even though i never had an opportunity to meet him and although i didn't meet shaykh uthaymeen i met some of his students i met some of his contemporaries I met some of the scholars who sat with him, uh, not name dropping any names of any scholars. Um, nonetheless, uh, I was very close with, a, with one sheikh who was one of the students of Sheikhotaymin, and he said he remembers a time when it was only him and another student sitting with Sheikhotaymin. Yeah, Sheikhotaymin, much like many of the other scholars, was warned against and ch- people chased away from his circles of knowledge. And this particular Sheikh said, I remember a time when there was only two people in the lesson of Sheikh Uthaymin. Only two people. Yeah, they created fitna around Sheikh Uthaymin as well, chased people away from his circles of knowledge. They did it to Imam al Bukhari as well. It, it happened to Imam al Bukhari as well. This comes with the territory. You got to be able to stand your ground, you got to be able to understand that this is part of your test. Every scholar wants to be a scholar when he knows that when he walks out into a room that there's hundreds of students waiting to sit with him and learn from him. Every, everybody wants to be a scholar when they see that that is, you know, you know the recompense of being a scholar. That I can walk into a room and everybody's sitting down, waiting for me to exit and open my mouth so they can write down what I'm saying. In that case, anybody would wanna be a scholar. But what about when you walk
2: out into a room and there's only one or two people there? What about when you walk out into a room and there's
1: only one or two people there? You know, so yeah. So Imam, uh, Imam Ahmed said, لَقَدْ he said that I was deprived of meeting Imam Malik because by the time Imam Ahmed got to Mecca, Imam Malik had already died. Imam Malik had already died. And Imam Malik and Hamad ibn Zayd, one of the two Hamad, Hamadan, Hamad ibn Zayd died the same, the same year. Imam Malik and Hamad ibn Uzay died the same year. You'll you find scholars, they usually die in pairs. I don't know why. It's it's just something, subhanAllah, about that. Scholars, they, we, we usually lose maybe two at a time. They usually die in pairs, subhanAllah. So you're losing two mountains of knowledge in one time. So he didn't have the ability to meet uh, Imam Malik. He said but Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala replaced Imam Malik with Sufyan ibn Uyayna and Imam Shafi. So although he didn't meet Imam Malik, he did meet a scholar or scholars that were just as great as Imam Malik and that was Sufyan ibn Uyayna as there were two Sufyans as there were two Hammads there was uh, there were two Hamad and there were two Sufyans Sufyanan there was Sufyan ibn Uyayna and Sufyan al-Thawri right sufyan uh, ibn uyayna was in mecca at the time that Im- uh, imam ahmed migrated there and he met sufyan ibn uyayna and he also met imam shafi'i rahimahullah ta'ala for the first time he would meet imam shafi'i again in baghdad a few more times when imam shafi'i lived in baghdad for 2 years uh, and he wrote all of imam shafi'i's books he memorized from imam shafi'i and then went back and wrote all of imam shafi'i's books and imam shafi'i and imam ahmed will go on to become very close friends right although scholar and teacher or or although teacher and you know uh,
2: and student imam shafi'i rahimahullah he said um imam shafi'i said that if
1: imam ahmed if you come across a hadith that is sahih then tell us about it because he is my scholar when it comes to hadith This was the type of respect that Imam shafii had for Imam Ahmed, even though Imam Ahmed was one of his students. He respected the fact that Imam Ahmed had a dhok al-ilmi, al-hadithi. He respected the fact that Imam Ahmed had a taste for the knowledge of hadith, and he gave him that. In this day and time, a student graduates from the university, and you might see that he's a rising star amongst us. But we're going to dampen, we're going to, you know, we're going to sully, you know, his reputation because he got to come through us, right? There was a time when, you know, you had people who preceded others and they had this persona that, you know, I was here before you, I was giving dawah before you, so you got to pay homage, you got to pay homage to me, you got to go through me, you got to sing my praises, you got to kiss my ring in order for you to get my respect. Respect is earned. Not given. That's number one. And number two, when you see a budding student of knowledge, and you see that he has, you know, you know, a a taste, a thirst for knowledge, and that he is proficient uh, in a certain area of of the religion, you give him that. We're trying to nurture. (laughs) We're trying to nurture that. I don't gotta go through you. I ain't gotta sing your praises. I ain't gotta kneel down and kiss your ring because you was giving dawah before me. What does that mean? Uh, respecting you is one thing. Worshiping you is something totally different. No student of knowledge should have to graduate from a university after putting his time in and uh, teaching and have to sit underneath the thumb or underneath the foot of a, somebody who preceded him, especially if the younger student of knowledge has more knowledge than the, the, the elder, the so-called elders, right? I never, I, I never you know, that, I never got with that. That, that always rubbed me the wrong way. I'm sorry. And here again, this is probably why I'm always, um, I'm always, in, I'm always into something. I'm sorry. I just that, that whole system, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't follow that system. I don't follow that system. I'm sorry. I'm not kneeling down. I'm not kissing your ring. I'm not singing your praises. And I'm not paying homage to you. I respect you as a result of you know, what you have done not who you sat with, how long you've been given dawah.
2: My respect is given based upon effort. Respect is given based upon effort that is earned. Effort put forth.
1: That's, I'm sorry, that's what I give respect. If you've been on the ground giving dawah for 20 years, but you haven't moved anything, you haven't nurtured anything, you haven't built anything, you don't have a pot to piss in, a window to throw it out of, what type of respect do
2: you expect me to give you? I should throw dirt in your face. As Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, he said, Ali عَلِمَ Nas,
1: Dunubi. That if people knew my sins, two people, you wouldn't walk behind me and you would throw dirt in my face. You've been on the ground giving dawah, you boast that you've been giving dawah for 30 years and 40 years and you've been giving dawah for 50 years, yet you still haven't. You haven't produced one Hafith Quran. You haven't produced one scholar or budding student of knowledge. You haven't built an educational facility where Muslims can go and learn. You haven't contributed anything. The only thing that you got to show for what you have done for the past 20 years is CDs, dude. You gotta be kidding me. And now somebody graduating from the university is supposed to come home, kiss your ring and kneel down to you and pay homage to you for what? What have you done? Homage is paid, respect is given, not because of who you sat with. I don't care who you sat with. Oh, I sat with Sheikh Fudan and I sat, that's your resume. I'm not hiring you. I don't care what your resume is.
2: I'm not hiring you. I don't care who you sat with. That does not give a man credence, who you sat with. It's what you have done, the effort put forth
1: the foundation that you laid so that the Muslim community you know what I mean can give you your roses while you are alive and when you die not just you sitting around talking about people backbiting people you know splitting up communities, splitting up marriages, splitting up people and then talking around you know, then now a student of knowledge graduating from the university is supposed to come home and pay homage to you pay respect to you for what because of who you sat with because as it stands in your resume, that's the only thing that you got got going for you. You're still boasting and bragging 20 years later about how many scholars you sat with, how much the, the Kibar, the ulama praise you or whatever. Nah, we live right here with you. I don't care what the ulama say about you. We
2: live right here with you. They don't know you like we know you. They know another side of you. Gotta be kidding me, man. respect and homage is not paid
1: based upon who you sat with and how long you've been giving dawah please stop saying giving dawah teaching islam you're teaching islam and i'm I'm sorry i just don't I, i didn't i didn't just walk into this you know blindly and just say okay this is what everybody's doing let me just follow what everybody's doing Oh, he's been giving Davo for 20 years, oh, mashallah, and every time I get in public, I'm supposed to mention your name and praise you and, you know, <laughs>
2: nah, I'm sorry. I don't know. I ain't cut from that cloth. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Forgive me. <laughs> and I guess that's
1: that's why I'm astray. It's all good, but I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not
2: following. I'm not toeing the line. I'm sorry. So he went to Yemen after that.
1: He went to Yemen. And when he went to Yemen, uh, Yahya bin Ma'in accompanied him on his journey to Yemen. And uh, he sat with the great scholar of Yemen during that time, Abd al al-Sin'ani. And he began to learn from him. He stayed in Yemen for 10 months. And he returned back to Baghdad when he was 36 years old and he began to work on what we know today is one of the largest compilations of hadith, which is known as the Musnad of Imam Ahmed. Some of his characteristics, Imam Ahmed was described as being tall, he was tall and he was extremely brown. He was extremely brown, he had henna in his beard, through which you could see the black strands from uh, from his uh, the original color of his beard. All right, he used to wear extremely white garments and was always seen to be very clean. All right, this was the physical characteristics of Imam Ahmed. Right, he used to put henna in his beard, the the red in his beard. So that's a tradition. Some people choose to use it. I'm Totally comfortable with my gray. I'm sorry. I don't think that I'll be putting henna in my beard. Nonetheless, it is from the sunnah of the Prophet Wasallam. Many of the Sahaba had, you know, henna in their henna in their beard. Uh, Imam Ahmed had henna in his beard, and you could see the strands of black hair underneath the henna where his hair was still black, possibly following the sunnah of the Prophet Wasallam. Um, al الملبس Right, his 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 clothes were always clean. His whites were always extremely white. It was said that Imam Ahmed put a lot of emphasis on how he looked on the outside. When he stood in front of people, he put a lot of emphasis on how he looked on the outside. Imam Ahmed رحمه Ta'ala, تعالى قال his nephew قال الحنبل سمعت أبو عبد الله يقول تزوجت وأنا ابن أربعين سنة فرزقني الله سبحانه وتعالى خيرا كثيرا Imam Ahmed said, I did not get married until I was into my forties. And after getting married, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blessed me with a lot of good. And there were many scholars who never married, such as Sheikh Al Islam ibn Taymiyyah, and never got married. Uh, Imam Anowi Abu Zakariyyah Muhyiddin, Yahya. He died when he was only 44 years old. You think about the 40 hadith of Imam al you think about uh, Riyadh al Salihin and all of these compilations of hadith. He did all of that in very, a very short period of time.
2: Imam al never married. He died at 44 years old. Not too far from where I am in my life. He died at 44 years old, man, subhanAllah. Never got married.
1: And Imam Ahmed not marrying, delaying marriage until he was in his 40s. You got to understand something about why he did that. He didn't do that because he was out, for, you know, fulfilling his desires and you know testing the waters and seeing what was going on out in the world. And then when he finds out, you know, after he's untested the waters enough and he's ready to settle down, then at 44 he decides he's ready to get married and commit himself to a woman. No. He didn't get married until he was in his 40s because he was busy seeking knowledge, traveling, journeying for knowledge, seeking knowledge of the religion. He didn't have time to get married, possibly in fear of getting married at an earlier age that he would neglect the rights of his wife. Many of the the scholars of the past, they they didn't get married at young ages because they were seeking knowledge of the religion. However, that doesn't mean That seeking knowledge, delaying marriage because you're seeking knowledge of the religion uh, is something that is acceptable for you. Perhaps it was acceptable for him because being single was not a fitna. As the scholars say that if being single is a fitna, then getting married becomes wajib. You understand? Stop comparing yourself. Stop looking at texts. Stop looking at information and saying, oh, well, Imam Ahmed didn't get married until his 40s. Yeah, but being single was not a fitna for Imam Ahmed being single for you i mean you how many times you going to almost
2: fall into zina how many times you going to almost fall into fornication and adultery and you keep saying getting
1: married is not an obligation okay but if being single is a fitna for you then marriage becomes wajib Marriage differs from man to man and woman to woman in the Islamic in in, in our tradition. And some for some people, marriage could be wajib. For some people, marriage could be sunnah. For some people, marriage could be mu'bah. For some people, marriage can be uh you know mustahab could be makruh could be hated,
2: and for some people, marriage could be haram. For some people, marriage could be haram. If you are spreading communicable diseases right, and you're not sharing that information with people, then
1: yeah, you're giving people diseases. Marriage for you is haram until you become transparent about that and then you give people an opportunity to make informed decisions. Not that you know that you carry in a disease and you're just running around marrying people, giving a disease to different people, knowing damn well that you have it, but you're not saying
2: anything to anybody. In your case, marriage would be haram. Because it's deception. If you have trauma, unaddressed trauma in your life that you know of, that you are aware of,
1: and you keep going in and out of marriages, imposing your trauma on other people, then yeah, marriage would be haram for you. Because you are not exposing to people that you have this trauma so that they can make an informed
0: decision. It's khida. It's deception. It's deception.
2: The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi he went out to the marketplace one day and he saw a guy selling some
1: fruits and vegetables in the marketplace. But when the Prophet Sallallahu Wasallam looked at the top
2: of the, of the fruit, he saw the fruit was just pristine. And he thought that there's something wrong with that. Because if you
1: leave your fruit cart outside, it rains or whatever the case may be, there's no way that you open up your fruit cart in the morning and all of the fruit on top is pristine.
2: This also gives us a lesson that when something looks like it's too good, it usually is. When something looks like it's too perfect, it usually isn't. When somebody comes off too perfect, They're usually not. When you see people being transparent
1: about their mistakes and their flaws, they're humanizing themselves. When a person comes in front of you and they're all perfect, and they've never made any mistakes, and they can speak from a place of privilege, you know, you have to kind of like raise an eyebrow to that. Because the Prophet said, that all of the children of Adam commit sin, make mistakes, and the best of those who sin are those who repent. No need to come in front of the people as if you are, as Allah says in the Quran, and do
2: not sanctify yourselves. Don't sanctify yourselves. Allah knows who truly fears Him. the Prophet ﷺ walks by the fruit stand and he sees all of the fruit
1: on the top, pristine, untouched. No brownness, no you know, wormholes, no nothing. So the Prophet وسلم, يده, he stuck his hand down to the bottom of the barrel and he felt that the fruit at the bottom of the barrel was spoiled. And he turns to the seller of the fruit and he said, أَفَلَا جَعَلْتَهَا كَيْ Why don't you put the spoiled fruit on the top so people can see it? مَنْ He who deceives us is not of us. It's not a behavior that is attributed to Islam. He who deceives us is
2: not of us. So if you have a communicable disease, herpes to the end of it, AIDS, whatever, and you know that you have it, it becomes your responsibility to be transparent about that if you want to get married. To marry
1: somebody with that and not tell them that you have it until after you've already consummated the marriage, you have deceived the person, and that behavior within itself, actually renders the marriage null and void. It renders the marriage null and void. You deceived me. You stole my ability
2: to make an informed decision. You took that from me by not being transparent about what you were carrying. So in that case, in that situation, yes, marriage would be haram for an individual like that. So, Imam Ahmed he said that I didn't get married until I was in my forties. Listen to what Imam Ahmed said about his wife. He said, "Rahim Allah, Um Saleh. Rahim Allah, Um Saleh. Sahabatni
1: tharathina sana. Makhteleftu ana wa hiya fi kalima wa'ida." Imam Ahmed Ta'ala praising his wife Umm Salih, right, we'll get to his his wife, his first wife was Abbasah, her name was Abbasah Bintu Fadl uh, and she was the one who gave birth to Saleh so she's Umm Salih and then she died and then Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala uh, blessed Imam Ahmed with another wife and her name was Rahana. And she gave birth to his son Abdullah. Both Salih and Abdullah also became scholars in their own right, and they also uh, narrated to us a lot of, you know, the story of Imam Ahmed as well as much of his Musnad. All right. I believe uh, his son Abdullah completed the Musnad. I don't even think that Imam Ahmed uh, lived long enough to complete it, if my memory serves me correctly. But Imam Ahmed he said, Rahim Allah, um Salih. May Allah have mercy on Umm Salih, his wife, Abbasah. May Allah have mercy on Umm Salih. Sahabatni
2: she was my companion, my comrade for 30 years. We, we talked earlier before
1: about when a wife transitions from being a wife to being your comrade. Completely different level of relationship. He said, may Allah have mercy on Um Saleh. She was my companion, my comrade for 30 years. Wa ana wa hiya fi And me and her never had a disagreement about anything.
2: Never had a disagreement about anything. We never differed in anything. Synchronized. Some people, some spirits, some souls are just like that. And then there are
1: some who it's just like, <laughs> it's friction from beginning to end. There's some, as the Prophet wasallam said, "Al-arwah junud mujannada. The souls are like conscripted soldiers. Those that find one another, that find an affinity to one another, they will have a closeness. And those that don't sometimes perhaps we just married somebody
2: who you know our souls just did not have an affinity to one another maybe our souls you know you know when you find that you know your
1: relationship with someone is just tumultuous you know from beginning to end you're trying to force the physical to be in sync and to be in harmony while the souls are you know, are not in harmony. The souls are disunited. You're trying to unite the body, but the souls are disharmonious, if that's even a word, right? I mean, that's looking at it from a a deeper spiritual perspective. We stay together because the embarrassment of being divorced, you know, I'm just, or the tired of, you know, chasing, tired of the sit down process, tired of being in this position. I just want to be married and settled. So we're forcing
2: the physical but the, the souls are not harmonious. The souls are not harmonious. He
1: said, may Allah have mercy on Um Saleh. She was my companion for 30 years, and we never differed in anything. <laughs> we never differed in anything. It's just synchrony. Some people have it,
2: some people work to develop it, and some people will never have it. So he was married
1: first to Abbasa, Bint Fadl, and she gave birth to his son, Saleh. Then he married after her. She died, and then uh, he married a woman by the name of Rehana, and she gave birth to uh, Abdullah. Um, And then he uh, had a a maidservant whose name was Hussan, and she gave birth to Zainab. Hassan and Hussein, he had twins, Hassan and Hussein, who also died later on. Uh, and also, she gave birth to uh, Muhammad, Hassan and Muhammad and Said. In total, he had six children, and two died. In total, he had a total of six children, two died Hassan and Hussein, his twins, they died. And then he had Saeed, Muhammad, Zainab, Hassan, and then he had Abdullah and Saleh from two other women.
2: SubhanAllah.
1: So he had six children in total, eight in total, two died. Um, But just to kind of give you an idea, you know, scholars, you know, and and their relationships, you know. SubhanAllah. He said, I was with this woman for 30 years, man, and we never had a disagreement, man. What does it take for people to get to that point? Let me tell you how a relationship can get to that point where we just, we don't differ in anything. We don't, you know, and it's not a a dictatorship, right? It's a healthy, harmonious relationship is when there's sincerity. You want good for the person, the person wants good for you. There's not this attitude of, I'm trying to conquer you. I'm trying to sway you. I'm trying to get you to do it my way. I'm trying to get you to be who I want you to be. This is where all of the friction comes in because your soul can feel it. Your soul can feel that you're in a space with somebody who's trying to
0: force you to be other than who you are. You can feel it. You can feel it. Constantly twisting you and turning you and, you know,
1: pushing you and pulling you and you know and you can feel it that this person is trying to change the essence of who I am not that the person is trying to you know correct some things about me that need to be corrected because we all come into relationships with things about ourselves that need to be corrected that's not what I'm talking about I'm talking about the pushing and the pulling and the twisting and the turning to try to change the essence of who you are that's what I'm trying to that's what I'm talking about Imam Ahmed made Hajj five times in his life. Once he walked to Mecca from Iraq, from Baghdad. You get a chance to look on the map, the distance between Baghdad and Mecca, <laughs> on foot walking, or on a bugle, on, on a you know, donkey, or on a, uh, a slow riding animal. He didn't have a lot of money, so but he was determined. That's the point that I'm trying to make. He was determined. He made Hajj five times. Let's talk a little bit about his character, the character of Imam Ahmed. Imam Ahmed was a very humble person, obviously a person coming from humble beginnings as he did, spending most of his life in poverty, most most of his life poor with not much
2: of anything. That'll do it to you. So let me give you an incident that happened. Let me show you his, you know, how do you find someone like that? What do you look for? It's not what you're looking for. Um, It's not, I'm looking
1: for someone who's like this. The key to finding someone that's right for you is knowing who you are. See, what we do is we come up with these long lists, right? The person has to be like this, has to be like this, has to be like this, has to be like this. And you know what we're really looking for when we create these long lists of expectations and you know, what the person has to be like. And you know what we're doing? We're hoping that we can find someone that meets all
2: of the qualifications on that list so we don't have to do no work on us. you understand? Because if you can find somebody who checks all your boxes, then you don't have to do any work on you. You don't have to You don't have to change anything about yourself because you got everything that you wanted. That's why we come up with these long lists, these
1: long lists of qualifications that a person has to meet in order to be with me. You gotta be this, you gotta be that, you gotta be this, you gotta make this amount, you gotta have this, you gotta have that. Why? Because if you find someone that meets that criteria, then you have to do no work on yourself. You don't have to do nothing. You could just lay back. You got everything you needed right there on paper. You checked all
2: your boxes. She checked all your boxes. You don't have to do nothing on yourself. That's why we put so much work. We put so much work in the list and very little work on the person that's creating the list. You understand? I don't need a list. I know who I am. And from the first or second sit down with you,
1: I can tell whether or not we're going to jail together. I can tell. Not because I know you, but because I know me. I know what I'm looking for. I know what I'm not looking for. I know what my energy responds to, and I know what it doesn't respond to. Know yourself well enough to know what is for you and what's not for you. Stop rolling dice. Maybe inshallah, work out. He looks like a good brother. She seems like a
2: good sister.
1: Stop rolling dice. Gambling is haram in Islam.
2: The only thing that you could ever be sure of is what you want and what you don't want. You understand? you don't know what the other person is bringing to the table.
1: You don't know whether or not this person is lying. You don't know whether or not this person is, you know, running games. You don't know. I don't know. But what I do know is I know me. I know my energy. I know how my body responds.
2: I know how my energy responds. I know me. It's not about this person has to meet all of this
1: criteria. This person has to check all of these boxes before we can be together
2: because that's just giving you a way out. That's giving you a a way
0: not to do any work on yourself. Stop with the lists because most of the stuff on your
1: list is unre- uh, unreasonable anyways, unrealistic anyway. Most of the stuff on your list is unrealistic. Double-check your list every now and again. Do a reality check on your list every now and again. I promise you, most of the stuff on your list is unrealistic. التواضع أتى رجل يمدح imam أحمد فقال له الإمام أحمد
2: أشهد الله أني أمقت على هذا الكلام
1: قَالَ وَاللَّهِ لَوْ مَا La Imam Ahmed, تعالى, a man praised him, said something good about him in public. Right? Imam Ahmed, he's sitting with a man and a man starts to say all of these great things about Imam Ahmed, start to praise him in public. Imam Ahmed goes to the guy and he says, I hate you for what you just said about me. He's praising Imam Ahmed. Oh, he's the Imam, Al Alama, or Fulana, and you know, this Alam, Al Jabal, Al Ilm. You know, he's praising him for all of this knowledge that he has. Imam Ahmed goes to the man and says, I hate you for what you just said. He said, Wallahi, if you knew the sins and the mistakes that I've made, you would
2: throw dirt in my face. You only know the public persona. You don't know me. Don't praise me like that.
0: Don't praise me like that. You don't know me like that.
2: <laughs> الحسن
1: والله انا لا نسمع ثنائك في كل مكان حتى في الظغور مع جيوش وهم يقاتلون العدو ويدعون لك ويرمون ال
2: المنجنيق ويثني عليك فدمعت عينا
1: امام احمد وقال اذنه أَذُنُّ أَنَّهُ إِسْتَدْرَاجِ مِنَ اللَّهِ جَلَ وَعَلَمُ A man came to Imam Ahmed and said, Imam Ahmed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has spread your praise all over. Everybody speaks so highly of you, Imam Ahmed this, Imam Ahmed that. He said, I hear your praises in every place I go, even on the battlefield. I hear people saying so much good about you, praising you. He said, even the soldiers, while they're fighting in the cause of Allah, are praising Allah for you and making dua for you. Even when they are throwing the catapult and they throw in the, the balls of fire over the wall, they're praising, they're asking Allah to have mercy upon you. Imam Ahmed start his eyes start to well up with tears. And he said, I think this is Allah setting me up for my ultimate destruction. Inna hu min Allah. This is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You know how something just feels too good to be right? You know how something, it just, it seems like it's going too good, and you're like, all right, well, you're waiting for the other shoe to drop. You're waiting for, you know, so where's this going? Where's this leading? That's that humility before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because a person feels like I don't deserve this. Why is God doing this for me? Why is he doing this for me? Is he punishing me? Is he setting me up for a punishment? I don't deserve this. Why is he doing this for me? You ever felt like that in your life? You ever felt like something was going so good? It's kind of hard to be true, especially if you've had many misfortunes in your life or you saw them as misfortunes, but they were actually blessings in disguise. There's so many people who have had so many misfortunes in their life, and they start to get down on themselves, and they start to think that they're cursed. They start to think that there's no good in them. They start to think that, you know, I don't know why I'm still living, right? You start to have these thoughts because there's so many misfortunes that come to you in your life, but you, what you don't realize is what you see as a misfortune is actually a blessing in disguise. It's a blessing. It's all on a matter of perception. It's all on how you see it, all on how you look at it. You can walk out your door and see that you have a flat tire and you're going to be late for work. This is the second day this week that you've been late. This is a new job. You just started. Not realizing that, eventually you're going to get fired from that job. And then you're going to go on unemployment. And you're going to sit around and you know your checks are only going to be enough. But in that time, when you're on unemployment, you lost this good job. How could you do that? The embarrassment that you felt, the, the pain that you're feeling because your unemployment checks is not enough to cover your bills. You know what's going to happen in the midst of that? Well, what should happen in the midst of that is that you're going to go and you're going to make wudu and your prayers are going to have more intensity than they ever had. Your dua is going to be more intense than it ever was. Your sincerity is going to be heightened more than it ever was. I promise you. You are going to cry
2: more than you ever have. That's the blessing in disguise. That's the blessing in disguise. Because
1: had that not happened, you would have continued with your mediocre worship. You would have continued with your mediocre worship. You're bumping your head four times and getting up no dhikr right? How many times we go down, we pray, just a mechanical movement. We get up from the salat. We don't even make dhikr. We run back to doing whatever it was we were doing, spend countless hours on the internet, very little dhikr of Allah, very little remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And most of the time, this is because we pretty much have everything at our back. We pretty much live in the good life. We don't need to call on a law like that. But when Allah starts to pull things away from you, take stuff away from you, stripping you of certain things, right? Certain luxuries. It puts you in an uncomfortable place. And as human beings, we don't like to live in discomfort, which is why we lie, which is why we do whatever we need to do to get out of that space of discomfort. Human beings don't like to live in discomfort. That's why we lie to ourselves, we lie to other people because we don't like living in discomfort. This is what social media has allowed us to do, is to escape the discomfort of the reality of our lives. (laughs) We don't have to live in our own reality. We can log on to Instagram. We can log on to Snapchat. We can log on to one of these social media sites and we can lose ourselves. I can be somebody else. I can live vicariously through somebody else. I can scroll through a whole bunch of pictures and just wish that that was me for 10 minutes, 15, 20 minutes and
2: live vicariously. You understand? But when Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala starts to take certain luxuries away from you the true believer there in that moment finds their sincerity to Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala it's back it's there so we see it as a as a misfortune as Allah
1: Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala says in the Quran asa wa perhaps you may hate a thing and Allah has placed an abundance of good in it How can you hate something, but Allah put an abundance of good, not just good, an abundance of good in it? That means that it's a matter of how you are seeing it. You're seeing it as a bad thing, as a calamity, as an adversity, as a misfortune, but Allah says he has placed an abundance of good in it. That means that you have to change your perception of it in order for you to be able to see the good in it, to ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to unmask it and allow you to see it for what it is. اللهم أرنا الحق حقا ورزقنا اتباعا وارنا باطلا ورزقنا Oh Allah, show us truth exactly as it is and give us the ability to follow it. And show us falsehood exactly as it is and give us the ability to stay away from it. But Imam Ahmed said, I fear that this is istidraj This is Allah taking me step by step by step to my eventually my eventual destruction. So he married uh, Abbasah ibn Tufadl, Umm Saleh uh, and then he married Rayhana and and then he had um, his other children from Husan which was his uh, concubine.
2: Um, and when he said that may Allah have mercy on Umm uh, um Saleh, um, we never differed in anything. It, it shows you, you know here again, the synchrony of the souls, man, you
1: know And when he married Rahana, After Umsaleh died, he married another woman by the name of Rahana, right? Listen to this conversation between Imam Ahmed and Rahanana. After he consummated the marriage with Rehana, a couple of days after they were married, Rehana asked him a question. She said, "Is there anything that you dislike about me?
2: Is there anything that you know you are displeased with about me?" Very interesting question for a woman to ask a man, because usually women are
1: biting their nails, hoping that there's nothing that the man dislikes. You rarely will find a woman who would throw it out there like that. Is there anything about me that you dislike? Anything that you are displeased with? Right? Right. And she had one eye, right? She was blind in one eye. Right. Exactly. So there's there's this kind of, you know, maybe he's displeased or maybe he's not, but I want to know. I'm asking the question. She said, do you dislike anything about me? فَقَالَ إِلَّا He said, no, I don't dislike anything about you except the shoe, these shoes that you wear. أَلَّذِينَ أَلَّذِي تَلْبَسِينِهِ He said, no, I don't like any. There's nothing about you that I dislike. And this is, keep in mind, she was blind in one eye. <laughs> right, she's wondering, why did you marry me? Like, I'm deficient right? Like any woman would feel, you know, like I'm deficient. You know, sometimes a woman will not disclose something about herself until after the man marries her. And then after he's married and he finds out about it, she's hoping that he just accepts it, right? Rarely where you find a woman that will be transparent during the sit-down process and say, hey, this is what it is. I mean, you have some women who are, you know, embarrassed by the fact that they have children from a previous marriage. Don't ever be
2: ashamed or be embarrassed by that. That, that's, That's who you are, that's what you are. That's what you are, that's who you are, you are a mother. And he should know going into a marriage with you
1: that he is marrying a woman, a mother, a woman who has gone through the process of delivering a soul into this world. That's an honorable process. No woman should ever be ashamed of that. Or I have three children, or I have five children, or I have, you know, six children. You know, I don't think any brother is going to marry
0: me. Man, hold your head up, man. Honor and dignity. Please. With dignity.
1: The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. I mean, and it's it's rare. There, there are brothers out here that are that that don't mind, that don't care that you have multiple children. There's brothers out here that don't care that you have a pouch, that you have a stomach from child, over from childbirth. There's men that don't care about that. There's men that don't care that you have stretch marks. There's men that don't care that your hair is not long, you
2: know, you don't have this elaborate long hair. There's men that don't care about that. She asked Imam Ahmed, is
1: there anything that you are displeased with about me? And Imam Ahmed said, no. I'm pleased with everything about you, with the exception of these shoes that you wear. <laughs> these high heel shoes that you wear. He said these shoes were not worn during the time of the Prophet by the women of the Sahaba during the time of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So you know what she did with the shoes? You know what she did with the shoes? She did she say well, these is my shoes. You trying to change me. I'm not giving up my shoes. I was wearing these shoes before I married you. And now and you knew I wore these shoes before you married me. So why would you marry me knowing that I wore these shoes? These are my shoes. You trying to change me. No. You know what she did with the shoes? She sold them. She sold the shoes with the
2: heels and bought flats. <laughs> and she began to wear flats she sold them for she sold them the shoes with the heels on them she sold them and she got flats <laughs> and she started to wear the flats and this shows you know she shows humility she's showing humility
1: And she didn't assume that because she was her best in her eyes that she was in the best of the eyes of someone else. We tend to present ourselves in our most perfect vision of ourselves and dare someone to find a fault with us. We really believe that we go into people's lives and we are the most perfect person and nobody should have anything to say about us and nobody should ever, and the moment somebody disagrees with you or has something to say about you, that it's the person is coming for you, the person is trying to shatter this glass house that you built for yourself. People are entitled to say that they don't like this about you, they don't like that about you. People are entitled to that. Do you think the person is supposed to like every single thing about you? Ask anybody who was married to anybody they may not like everything about the person, but they love the whole person. I may not like everything about my spouse, but I love the whole person that she is. I love the whole person, they are. (laughs) You understand? I may not like everything about them, they may not like everything about me. It's not about, you don't get to pick and choose. I married you because I love the whole you. There are bits and pieces about yourself that, you know, I'm not really fond of, and I'm sure that there are bits and pieces. And that's what love. Love causes you to kind of,
2: you know, live with the person despite the fact that they are. That's love. That's love. Right. You strive to be the best in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But people are entitled to say that they don't like
0: something about you. People are entitled to not like something about you. Maybe
1: you don't, they don't like the way you dress. You country. Well, maybe you are country. <laughs> maybe you dress country. Like own it. <laughs> Unless you're going to take the person's, you know, advice in terms of clothing and say, all right, well, you think that I should change this color or that color? There's some men that are country. Tons of them. Country as heck. Still wearing dad jeans and shoes a little too big for you, you know what I mean? Shirts two, three sizes too big for you. Country. And a woman may marry you and she might not necessarily be fond of your dress, the the way that you carry yourself, the way you dress, but she loves you. She loves you as an individual. It's not a dismissal or an invalidation,
2: right? It's not a dismissal or invalidation. So, let me let me throw this out there.
1: She asked Imam Ahmed, "Is there anything about me that you dislike or you're displeased with?" He said, "Nothing, with the exception of these high heel shoes that you wear." This was something that women didn't wear during the time of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So she took the shoes, she went, she sold them and she bought some flats. Because she saw that that was something that was displeasing, she wanted to be pleasing to her husband. So now let me let me ask you sisters a question. If you were having a sit down with a brother right now and you have pictures of yourself on the internet that a man may not be pleased with. You have your hijab back with your little baby hair sticking out in the front. You have on a tight over garment where your breasts are being exposed where the you know the description of your body can be seen very clearly through your garment. And your husband was to ask you, or the man that was going to marry you was to ask you um, to remove your pictures from Facebook and from Instagram. How many of you would be willing to remove your pictures from Instagram without contest, right? Because some of you protest. Well, those pictures were up there because, you know, before I married you, those pictures are from when I was in high school. And sisters, let me me share something with you. If you post a picture of yourself prior to Islam, prior to you becoming Muslim, when you was in high school, your college days, and you don't have on hijab, right? And you post that picture on the Internet, right? That is still you without a hijab, even though it was before Islam. You're still showing the
2: world, hey, world, this is how I look without my hijab on. Do you not still look like that?
1: Do you think that that changes anything because you posted the pictures and this was before you became Muslim? This was your college days. This was in high school. Are you not? Understanding that when you post that picture, you're giving
2: the world a general idea of what you look like with your hijab off. But how many women, if a man said to you,
1: the one thing I am displeased with about you are the pictures that you have on social media. Could you please take those down? Oh, all hell break loose. The fit hit the shan. Oh, you trying to change me? Oh, I had those pictures before I met you. Those pictures been up there. I have my Instagram account since 2012, 2013. You trying to change me? You trying to come for me. This is, you know, my
2: life. You know, it's like, really? Is it really that serious? Pictures on the internet? Is it really that serious? I'm
1: I'm just I'm just trying to show you where
2: how far we've come from, you know, from real Islam. Because the pictures are number one are haram.
1: The brother shouldn't have to ask you to take the pictures off. You should already know by default of a Muslim woman whose hallmark
2: is modesty. The hallmark of our deen is modesty. The Prophet said, every religion has a hallmark.
1: Every religion has a hallmark. The hallmark of Islam is hayat, It's modesty. Every religion has a particular, has a particular behavior, a particular quality that that is particular to that particular religion. Every religion has a particular quality that is specific that is particular to that
2: religion. The quality, the hallmark of Islam is hayat, is modesty. It doesn't matter whether it's a request or a demand. It doesn't
1: matter whether, it's, here we go, here we go with the walls, putting the walls up. Now you're becoming defensive. It depends on whether it's a request or a demand. It doesn't matter whether it's a request or a demand. Because if I demand that you do something because it's haram, don't worry about it coming from me. It came from Allah. I'm only the carrier of the message.
2: It came from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It didn't come from me. I'm telling you what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying. I'm telling
1: you what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said. Don't say, oh, it depends on whether it's a request or a demand. So, does Allah have to request you to take it down? That's my question. Does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala have to request that you take it? Does Allah have to ask you nicely?
2: Does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala have to ask you nicely to take it down? Here again. Uh, and you know, I mean, until you're ready to get married, you know, leave your pictures up there.
1: But if you if you are not ready to make those type of compromises, then stay single. Stay single. Because there is a strong possibility, even after the brother marries you, he might be okay with it from the beginning because some men do that, right? They they don't want to ruin a good thing, so they'll say, you know, nah, I'm cool with it, it's okay, it's good. You know, and
2: uh, and then afterwards, you know, when the feelings set in, he might be like, nah, I'm not cool with that.
0: Uh, I'm not cool with that." You know, I'm just throwing it out there. I'm just I'm just giving us a, a
1: modern modern day example of how that could be looked at. He took issue with the fact that she wore high heels. She went and she sold them. She bought some flats. It wasn't a big deal. This was something that I did before I be I got married. I'm talking about women who post pictures of themselves on social media, and you know, when asked to take them down, there's a whole protest that goes on that may even lead to the woman's divorce, may even lead
2: to resentment between the husband and wife. And it's just like, you know, is it really that serious? right so anyway قال عبد الوهاب الْوَرَّاقِ
1: ما رأيت مِثْلَ أحمد بن حنبل قَالُ وإيش الذي بان لك من علمه وفضله على سائر من رأيت قال رجل سئل عن ستين ألف مسألة فأجاب فيها بأن الله جل وعلا قال أخبرنا وحدثنا Abdul Wahab al another scholar, he said that I have never seen anyone like Ahmed ibn Hanbal.
2: I have never seen anyone like Ahmed ibn Hanbal. So someone said to him, well, what did you see from Imam
1: Ahmed that, you know, from his knowledge and his virtues that made him stand out to you more than any of the other scholars that you have met? He said, because... I saw Imam Ahmed, he was asked 16,000 questions. 16,000 issues were brought to Imam Ahmed, and each issue, he responded,
2: Akbarana hadathana. (laughs) With each and every question he was asked, he quoted a hadith for it
1: directly linking the chain of narration back to the Prophet My shaykh told me, who told his shaykh, who heard it from his shaykh, who heard it from his shaykh, who heard it from Abu Hurairah, who heard it from the Prophet who said X, Y, Z. He brought each and every hadith for every question, he brought a hadith with the chain all the way back to the Prophet We talk about
0: knowledge, ilm deep knowledge of the religion. show you
1: some more, one of the leaders of the Muslims in the Iraq area, his name was Mu'tasim, one of his uh, constituents came to Imam Ahmed, فسبahu. he began to insult Imam, Imam Ahmed in front of all of the people, he insulted him, disrespected him, You know, made little of his situation in front of everybody. فَقَالَ النَّاسِ يَا عَبْدِ اللَّهِ يَا أَحْمَدُ رُدَّ عَلَيْهِ السَّفِيهِ They said to Imam Ahmed, respond to him, this ignoramus, this ignorant person, he's talking about you, he's belittling you, he's disrespecting you in front of everybody, respond back. And Imam Ahmed said, He said, no, I'm not going to respond back to him, because if I did, then where would the Qur'an be in my life if I responded back to him with the same level of ignorance? Doesn't Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say in the Qur'an إِذَا خَاتِمَهُمُ الْجَاهِلُونَ قَادُوا سَلَامًا And when the ignorant speak to them or disrespect them, they simply say, "Salama, peace, and they walk away. He was a strict follower of the Qur'an. He said, no, I'm not going to respond back to him because then where would the Qur'an be in my life if I responded back to him? Doesn't Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say in the Qur'an that when the ignorant respond to you or the, the ignorant speak to you, in a disrespectful way, then just simply respond, Salam, peace to you. Qala Ali ibn al another mountain of knowledge, another scholar of hadith, Ali ibn al-Madini, he said, kana Imam Ahmed fi Bani Israel nabiyin minal anbiya. He said, If Imam Ahmed lived during the time of Bani Israel, he would have been a prophet. He would have been one of the prophets of Bani Israel. It was reported that Imam Ahmed memorized a million hadith, a million hadith. Now keep in mind that a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, there are not a million sayings of the Prophet ﷺ in our tradition. So how did Imam Ahmed manage to memorize a million hadith? We're talking about hadith with different chains of narration. We're talking about also the athar, a sahaba. We're talking about the narrations of the sahaba. All right. And we're talking about the fatawa, the, the, the Islamic rulings and verdicts of the, the sahaba. So this is what is meant when it says he memorized over a million hadith. Um, um, Abu Zura'a, al razi another mountain of knowledge. He was talking to
2: Imam Ahmed's son, Abdullah. Right. He said...
1: Uh, Abu Zora'ah said to Imam Ahmed's son, Your father memorized a million hadith. So it was said to Abu Zura'a, Well, how did you know that he memorized a million hadith? He said, Because I was reviewing hadith with him one day and I came across every, you know, every chapter of knowledge that I opened up, he had hadith, hadith, hadith to give me in each and every chapter, totaling a million hadith. We're talking about a man who
2: memorized, subhanAllah, memorized Islam, carried Islam on his back, subhanAllah. Imam Imam Ahmed was also the Imam of Ahlu Sunnah during his time. قال
1: أحمد كتبت عن ابن مهدي نحو عشرة آلاف حديث ويقول ابنه عبد الله قال لي أبي خذ أي كتاب من كتب الوكيع فإن شئت أن تسألني عن الكلام أحدثك بإسناد وإن شئت بإسناد بِإِسْنَاد حَتَّى أُخْبِرُكَ أَنِ الْكَلَامِ يَحْفَظَ الْحَدِيثِ وَالْإِسْنَادِ Imam Ahmed, he said that I recorded from Abdurrahman
2: ibn Mahdi, another mountain of knowledge. I recorded from him close to 10,000
1: hadith, 10,000 hadith from one sheikh, from one scholar. I recorded from him. And he said to his son one time, Abdullah, he said, choose any of the books of Waqir ibn Jarrah, pick out any one of his books, and I will narrate to you the hadith with the isnad back to the Prophet ﷺ. I'll give you the hadith, and I'll give you the isnad, the chain of narration, all the way back to the Prophet sallallahu ibn Ismail an abihi وَقَمْ سُمِيءَ يَكْتُبُونَ عَنْهُ فَتَاوَىٰ وَأَحَدِيثَهُ وَالْبَقِيَّ يَتَعَلَّمُونَ مِنْهُ أَدَبَهُ وَسَمْتَهُ وَأَخْلَاقَهُ وَتَعَالِمَهُ مَعَ النَّاسِ SubhanAllah, Hussein ibn, ibn Ismail narrated on his, on his father that in the circle of knowledge that Imam Ahmed used to teach in,
2: there were over 5,000 5,000 students sitting there listening. 5,000 students.
1: Khamsa 5,000 students sitting. Can you imagine? If you guys have ever been to Mecca and Medina, how many of you guys have been to Mecca and Medina for or Umrah, right? And you walked into the Prophet's Masjid and you seen Sheikh Abdul Muhsin al-Abad who by far had probably the largest following or a Shanqiti. Has some of the largest crowds in the Prophet's Masjid. You could look, you could stand way in the back of the Masjid, and you could just see red and white gutras, white gutras, students just sitting down for as far as the eye can see. Students just sitting there, writing down, jotting down his, you know, commentary on Hadith. Subhanallah al-Azim. From the time that I was there in Medina, for the years that I was there, he covered the Sunan of Abu Dawood, he covered the, the Jami of Tirmidhi, he covered, you know, uh, 40 hadith of Imam an Noah, he covered all of the six books of hadith for the whole time that I was there. Every night, did not miss a night except on Thursday, Yom Al-Khamis, other than Thursday. He's there every single night, his student is reading to him and he's giving commentary on the hadith or he's giving commentary on the, you know, on the isnad, on the chain of narration. It's just an amazing view. And the amount of students there was nowhere near 5,000. We're talking about 5,000, right? Hussein ibn Ismail, on the authority of his father, said that there would gather in the circles of knowledge that Imam Ahmed was teaching in over 5,000 students. 500 of them, pay attention, 500 of them were writing down his hadith, his narration, his isnad, his commentary. He said, and the rest, 500 writing, and the rest of them are just sitting there in amazement, studying his edub, studying his mannerisms, studying his etiquette, studying the way that he conducts himself with his students. The rest are just learning edub. 500 are writing. So, 4,500 are just staring in amazement at Imam Ahmed and the way that he answers questions, the way that he smiles, the way that he pauses in between. You know, Shaykh Abdul Mursin, one of the things he used to do is that uh, he would answer questions, right? Person would say, Sheikh uh, al sa'il, kada wa kada wa Oh, Shaykh, such and such is asking the question. And while he's waiting for the person to finish asking the question, you can hear Shaykh Abdul Mursin asking Allah for forgiveness. Astaghfirullah. Astaghfirullah 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 The sheikh يقول للسائل katha wa katha hal yajuz katha wa, kada wa, kada wa kada. And then the sheikh will say la hadha ma no, this is not permissible this is haram
2: in islam next question and he's like astaghfirullah 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 you can hear him asking Allah
1: subhanahu wa ta'ala forgiveness while he's waiting for the person to ask the next question it's just amazing to sit there and watch Scholars conduct themselves like this. And this wasn't for show. This is just who he was. This is who he is. SubhanAllah, laleem. I remember during Tarawiyah, like sometimes I would be tired. You know, you're at school all day long, you're sitting in circles, you get to the Prophet's Masjid, you're hot, it's tired, it's sweating. And I remember praying Salatul Tarawiyah. And who comes and sits right next to me? is Sheikh Abdul Mursen, his son,
2: and Sheikh Abdul Mursin's father. His father. His father's sitting right next to me. Sheikh Abdul Mursin is sitting on the
1: side of him, and Sheikh Abdul Mursin's son is sitting on the side of him. And wallahi, as we're praying Salatul Tarawiyah, his father had to be in his 90s at that
2: time. And I could see this old man getting up with vigor for each and every rakah. I'm tired.
1: I'm exhausted. I'm like, all right, this is my last rock. I'm going home. And I would see this old man just get up with such enthusiasm. And I used to say, there's no way in the world I'm going to let this old man outdo me in prayer. No way. I would feel embarrassed to go home. Wallahi, I stayed there and prayed, not because I wanted to, but because of the embarrassment that I would feel had I got up and went home knowing that there's a man sitting next to me in his 90s that that is getting up to pray with enthusiasm and vigor that i couldn't even
2: muster up and i was in my 20s i was in my 20s in the university subhanallah okay so uh, we're going to
1: stop here, inshallah, ta'ala. Uh, my next class will be Wednesday, and we will go segue into um, our next portion of this. So after covering the biography of Imam Ahmed, some of the scholars he learned from, some of what the scholars said about him, some of his knowledge, some about his, you know, his, um, his life, his personal life, his wives, his children. Then we're going to go into um, fitna. And what is fitna? What is trial? What is tribulation? Why is it necessary? Right? Because we're talking about the life and trial of Imam Ahmed. So we covered the life of Imam Ahmed. Now we want to segue into the trial. Why is fitna necessary? Why does Allah test us? What is the purpose of fitna? Right. As one of the scholars said that uh, Bishop Ibn Harith, he said that Imam Ahmed, he he, he he was put into the flames and he came out golden. So what is test? Why does Allah test us? What is the purpose of tests? And then after that, we'll segue into uh, the deviant groups that emerged during those times. And this is all the foundation layering the bricks so that we have a clear understanding of who these people that, you know, uh, Imam Ahmed uh, begin to challenge when it came to the philosophy or this deviant ideology that the Qur'an was created. So we'll learn a little bit about the Mu'tazila, uh the Jahmiyyah, and the modern day Ashairah, the Ash'aris and they're still alive and well today. They're still alive and well today. Many of them on the internet, many of them, you know, in our localities here on the East Coast and in other places who talk about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala being, you know, in this place or that place and, you know, uh, reinterpreting Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's attributes. They still exist today. But we need to have a clear understanding of how to approach these things before we go into the story of Imam Ahmed. I cannot give you the story without giving you the backstory first. So Wednesday, inshallah ta'ala, we'll talk about fitna, why is fitna, why is trial and tribulation necessary? Because someone could look and say, well, why does Allah let this happen to people? All right, very important for us to understand the nature of fitna and why it's necessary. And then we'll go into some of the deviant groups and their ideologies and beliefs. And then by next week, inshallah, we should be ready to crack open the book, the Mihna of Imam Ahmed, the trial of Imam Ahmed, and how it started. You will be amazed to know that before this trial started with Imam Ahmed, Imam Shafi'i had already told him that it was going to happen because he saw it in a dream. Ajib. SubhanAllah, al-Azim. Imam Shafi'i saw this happening in a dream. He already knew it was going to happen to him. SubhanAllah. Lameen. But, inshallah, I'll see you guys on Wednesday. With Take these last few minutes before the adhan is called to make dua, uh, inshallah. And the dua of the fasting person at the time that they break their fast is always responded to. So please keep me and keep my family in your dua, keep the Muslims in your dua. بإذن الله تعالى جزاك اللَّهُ خيرا وصلى الله على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرة وسبحانك ربك رب العزة عما يصفون والسلام على المرسلين والحمد لله رب العالمين والسلام عليكم
0: ورحمة الله وبركاته.